OPEC's ready to put more oil into a market that very much needs it. The expanded Panama Canal is already altering global trade flows. UBS says that brokerage incumbents reign supreme and that disruptors aren't a major factor. And Sweden gets the world's first road that recharges electric trucks as they move over it. I'm JP. And I'm Chad. And we discuss all these topics and more on this week's episode of What the Truck. Hey, JP, great to be with you again. Bell Suharted. <laughs> Might as well just say it, huh? Might as well just say it. It's actually becoming more interesting what I'm drinking because we already know what you're drinking. Uh, and I, 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 think, I think Bell's Suharted remains endlessly fascinating. <laughs> clearly. Clearly you do. Uh, I'm uh, branching out today. With um, what so, you got there, Chad? Somewhat of a branching out. I mean, it's an India Pale Ale, uh, otherwise known as an IPA. It's a ballast point, fathom. Uh, I shouldn't be talking away from the mic. My bad. Um, but uh, the uh, it, it's it, it feels West Coasty. It's a kind of a West Coasty IPA. Yeah, it's explain kind of, explain it's, the difference well, between the West Coast IPA and it's got the, it's got a light malt body, not a heavy malt body. You know, from those grains. Uh, the 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 not not as the hop sweet the, no it's not it's not that the hop characteristics are are floral they feel in this case kind of orangey and maybe a little piney I see uh, I see I see as opposed to uh, a heavier malt body is what I think of more in the East Coast what does that translate to in terms of like taste uh, I think I don't translate. It's hard to explain. Okay. Yeah, um, yeah. You're 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 so like deep in in the beer weeds. It's hard to like. Anyway, cool. Just wait. West till Coast until we, we bring out some Ballast stuff Point that we've actually Fathom. brewed. Um, more importantly, <clears throat> we have headlines of all kinds. Uh, this week, we JP, do. tons of stuff. Um, a, a a fair, relatively big story that it's big, but of course. If you've been listening to the past, you know, two or three weeks worth of material, we have touched on the anticipated day that is today, June 21st, uh, and it's in Vienna. The OPEC meeting is happening. Right. Um, right. Tell us, like, you know, give us an overview. First of all, what has happened with oil supply over the past few years? Relatively, like three past three years. Yeah. So um, basically, there was a crash in 2000 and really back end of 2014 into 15 and 16. Um, basically, what happened was OPEC was trying to starve American shale producers out of the market. And so they knew that we had a relatively high break even point on barrels of oil. And so they tried to produce a ton of oil in order to force the price down below American break-even point and um, starve us out. And it kind of worked, but it kind of didn't. They didn't really finish the job because at the bottom line, um, oil is just another commodity to the U.S., right? But, you know, and so, yeah. so if, if people are making $2 a barrel or $5 a barrel or, or $10 a barrel on a 
on a barrel of oil to pump it and, and refine it, they're going to do that. Saudi Arabia, on the other hand, funds their entire government on oil. And so they need $25 a barrel of profit, $30 a barrel of profit. So it hurt them worse than it hurt us. At the beginning of 2016, OPEC was like reversed course. And so they started cutting production to pump the price back up. And that's kind of been the story for all of 2016, 17, and this year. And a few things have apparently contributed to uh, the gigantic surplus that we began to see uh, and why things have fallen off a little more dramatically than anticipated. Yeah, yeah. So uh, there's been a lot of um, global economic growth, um, a rare period where all the world's major economic regions were growing at the same time. It does seem rare. And that really, you know, as as OPEC... And we should say OPEC plus Russia, because Russia yes. isn't formally a member of uh, OPEC, but they've but been cooperating a part on of... petroleum policy. Yes. Um, so when they cut production, basically, if you look at the the inventories, uh, the strategic We have reserves, a great graph of it on the, uh, the OPEC story. Yes, John Kingston, our executive editor who came to us from Platts, you know, spent a career covering energy and metals and other commodities um, wrote a great story on this. But essentially what happened was all of the wor- the major economies, strategic reserves of petroleum have been drawing down. And besides the global economy thing, and there was also the, uh, the OPEC cutting, you know, so, so um, uh, supply as a result of America's shale operations, their oil shale operations growing. But there is also the, um, a series of, uh, as, as, as Kingston put it, unprecedented reductions in, in output, not the least of which was, you know, led by uh, Venezuela and, and, and they have apparently their production has gone down by 50% with no end in sight. And it may even, may even be, you know, go worse. Oh God, them. yeah. I mean, they used to make you know two to three billion. Uh, sorry, two to three million barrels per day. Now they're making less than one. Essentially, their economy is in free fall. Their currency is worthless. The government. I mean, the problem is, is that they have these state-owned petroleum companies, and the government literally does not have the money to pay people to work at these places to extract their oil. So. All of that is to say that these are some reasons why things fell off to the dramatic extent that they did. But in the meantime, it looks like uh, a lot of... There might be open another can. You just you just sprayed my forearm with that. Yeah, thing. well, so... yeah, um, so Good times. So in Vienna, so what they're saying, basically, they're not saying anything drastic. They're not saying well, that... But they've been telegraphing the signals yes, of what's going yes. on. And the price of oil has been going down as a result. Especially Russia, especially Saudi Arabia. Iran has been the main resistor to increasing production. But essentially, what they're saying is, we can increase production and still stay at 100% of the planned production cut that was announced earlier. Like, like Iran, you know, sorry, Russia is basically saying like, Venezuela is falling off faster than predicted. Let us increase production to offset that. And we'll still maintain the agreement beforehand. And all indications seem that, you know, things are stabilizing in a favorable, reasonable way. We, we hope that cooler heads, uh, rational thought will prevail and that indeed they will, 
uh, increase the surplus. Yeah, and states, you know, and the way this affects American trucking, I think we should say, is that it doesn't seem to be a threat to the American oil industry, um, especially shale, which is quite trucking intensive, as we've said before. Um, We're seeing rising fuel costs. Oh, yeah. Fuel costs are way up. um, And I don't know how much that will be affected. It's right. it's a little bit more the supply chain of oil is a little bit more complicated when you get into you know the refineries moving crude back and forth you know actually you know producing a diesel fuel product out of crude you know so that's wait and see for for for, for uh, price action on diesel fuel and we will and uh, you know uh, one story that you covered which I thought was a really interesting story this week uh, related to maritime is uh, what's happening with the expanded Panama Canal and how it's, you know, there's this emerging new reality of how it's altering global trade flows. You want to tell us a little bit about how this has happened and what's happening? Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, this 100-year-old piece of infrastructure just broke its all-time volume record for a month in May. Um. It's based on the expansion. This is the actually the third time it's broken its all-time volume record. Oh wow! Since okay. the expansion was finished, and in just in May, you mentioned yeah, you last month, the, the, yeah. the most recent month, thirty-eight point one million tons went through the canal, and that's like ton, yeah. And then there's a special Panama Canal standard measurement sort of formula that that um, computes that. But essentially, what's happening is we're getting a lot more containers from Asia going through the canal to the East coast instead of going to the West coast and being trucked across the country. Yeah. And so right now I think the spread between, so that's kind of cool, right? It's very cool. I mean, in a lot of ways, it's very cool. Efficiency, some costs, it lowers um, average length of haul uh, for, for cargo it is it you know it's able to deliver um, freight to the population centers on the east coast more efficiently? And I was going to say, and at a time where capacity is so tight. Exactly. You know? Exactly. So. Um, so there's about if you look at the the container rates um, to ship something from say Shanghai to Long Beach versus Shanghai to Savannah, it's about a thousand dollars difference. Okay. But it costs more than that, a lot more than that, to truck something from Long Beach to Savannah. And the question is, who is going to control the Midwest? Is Savannah going to start supplying Chicago to a higher degree? That's sort of uh, where we're, where we're looking at this. Story. Yeah. Um, yeah, the Georgia so, Ports Authority is on track to have their uh, most successful yep. uh, year in its history and on a number of fronts. Yep, yep. And the other half of the Panama Canal um, volume story, so we, we, we talked about the East Coast container trade, but we're also talking about westbound... LNG, right. it was LNG, both directions. Li- liquefied natural gas and LPG, which is liquefied petroleum gas, which is essentially butane and propane. And so, essentially, um, this is being driven by fracking. When um, if you try to exploit a, a conventional oil play, it's you're basically just 
putting a straw into an underground lake of oil, right? And so yeah. you're, you're just getting oil. When you do fracking, there's a ton of different hydrocarbons sort of locked into that rock, including natural gas. And so when you frack, you get oil, but you also get natural gas as a byproduct. And so all the oil they've been doing in the, in the Permian and like that, yep. they've been getting natural gas with it too, causing the price of natural gas in the U.S. to go way down. It's still very high in Asia. It's There's about, um, so per million B, BTUs, there's about an $8 difference. You know, it's like it's like $3 in the U.S. It's like 11 to 12 overseas. And so they're refining that natural gas. They're exporting. They're putting it on tankers. They're sending it westbound through the Panama Canal to um, well, basically to Japan, Korea, and China. And so they're, they're just printing money at this point because wow. they, they can they can get it for three dollars at um, the Henry Hub pipeline in Louisiana, and in Japan it costs it costs eleven sixty. That reminds me, uh, speaking of, of straws, it reminds me of There Will Be Blood, and now my straw reaches across the room and starts to your, drink. Your milkshake. <laughs> yeah, but thank goodness we're not doing that. This is our own, uh, this is our own stuff we're drinking. Yeah, so... And, it's, and it's, it's good. It's exciting. What's interesting, though, is just one last tidbit. Before, so in, in 2015, there were zero LNG ships transiting the Panama Canal. Okay. In this fiscal year alone, there's been 182. Wow. Some great data coming out. It's a whole, it's a new trade flow that's been enabled by this infrastructure investment. Part of why to stay, stay tuned to what the truck, you're going to learn about little things like this, including a a, a very important headline that uh, is coming out today. uh, Or actually it was a couple days ago. UBS's report, that, uh, you know, basically what they're reporting, this is interesting, brokerage incumbents still reigning supreme. Mm-hmm. Yep. Disruptors, all these technology disruptors, not really making the dent that we might have anticipated they were making. Yeah. You covered the story, right? Yeah. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about what UBS said about the brokerage uh, truckload business in the U.S.? Well, uh, you know, one of the main challenges that we've known about for uh, freight for freight brokers is developing and maintaining uh, their reliable carrier base. And as right. a result, it's probably may may come as no surprise to some people that you know you know the, for all the hype for all the talk uh, in the end. There's a lot of competition from um, the, the the techs, the new tech-focused brokers, right. um, but there's not a big dent uh, in in what's happening um, across the you know just the the landscape of of the industry and and how things are actually right, the right. transactions that are happening. So the adoption of these digital apps, you know, the, what we call like the Uberization of freight, you know, that hasn't really had that much market penetration. And on the other hand, the big incumbents like C.H. Robinson have invested millions and millions of dollars into technology. And they actually have really impressive platforms. Um, they actually do. Stiefel just um, resumed their coverage of all of the major 3PLs. And they kind of were saying that like, 
you know, even the like the company that um, we think of as the original tech disruptor of the brokerage space, Echo Logistics, is now you know so big. You know, it's these companies have an advantage when they're already at scale. For sure, I mean it's uh, so in a tight capacity market, um, shippers need them to find trucks. In a low capacity, you know, in a, in a in a loose sort of capacity market, yeah, trucks need them to find loads, and so they're playing both sides of the field. And if they can have a efficient user experience, um, they they can they can you know basically maintain loyalty. Uh, yeah, and basically, like I think that you know one of the things that you know Zach Strickland has pointed out for for a, for a while as well. Is that you know? It's just it's hard to compete with like a C. H. Robinson's scale. Uh, it, it, their their reach uh, remain. You know, all it's like they have the scale. They have the network. All they have to do is in, in, intelligently and strategically apply and adopt the 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 right, right you know tech study their own and, data and, and then they'll be good and, and and while you you know to some extent when you become so large it might be harder than meets the eye right to to do that you're not light you're not agile you can't make quick you know decisions but uh it seems that actually navisphere their 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 technology yeah is 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 doing it's kind of, well it's almost it's, like industry leading is what i've heard uh, it is. It is now. It's starting to be, and it's interesting. Um, but it, it's it's to, at the same time. It's not to say that the uh, the Ubers and the convoys of the world, Uber freight and convoys, right. the, the, the scale is achievable. It's just that it's not happening as fast as some might think in in, in terms of the tech plays right and that's that's another point that I, I heard from some financial analysts who are studying the space okay excuse me is that basically ch robinson is the biggest brokerage in north america by a factor of three yes right but yeah, they still enormous they still only command 12 percent of market share so in that all of that you know, potential mar- potential addressable market. Yeah, that's inter- that's an interesting uh, look. Okay, um, it, it, it's yeah, and interestingly, in terms of their downloads, which is a, a an important measurable part of the market traction in the space, uh, it ranges from seven to seventeen percent of the downloads over the past four years. Um, you know, while you know Coyote. Uh, it, it, you know, is ranged in the, in the range of three to fourteen percent during that same time. So it's a wider range, but but they're they're getting the down the downloads, and that's that that kind of is showing that uh, it it doesn't completely translate, but it means that you know brokers are are able to find them. It, yeah. it means they're they they're, they know they where you are. Presence. In fact. Yes, in fact. right. They they know where if you, you have are, you are. their app on your phone. They know where you are. So some some interesting data coming out. In in a way, you could almost say it's like a non-story that you know, oh, the incumbents are still the incumbents. Uh, I I think that it's 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 an update. It's you know it's crazy things aren't happening yet, but it's a process. Well, it also I think it just shows that the incumbents are taking the digitization of their industry very seriously, and they're trying Mm. to leverage the networks they already have and the data they are already have to be the best at it 
Right. You know what I mean? they're ta- they're, they're, that's a good, great point. They are, they're taking I mean, they're, it seriously. They're, they're almost learning from their challengers and trying to beat them in, and, in a way. Yeah. At their own game. And and our data is uh, it, our data from the past several months has been show indicating the very thing that this UBS report um, uh, is is saying. Uh, finally, uh, one of our main headlines of the week is that Sweden gets the world's first road that recharges electric trucks as they move over it. Sweden. Yeah, go. Go, go Sweden. Uh, but, you know, it turns out, it turns out that it might not be as big of a deal as it sounds like. Hey, it's, you know, the exciting part is they figured out yeah. some of the safety stuff. Spoiler alert, this isn't electrifying <laughs> I-75. Right. How, how many how many miles are we talking about, Chad? Well, as I read the story, unfortunately, JP, it's only the amount of 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 road that, you know, I could probably run, which is a mile and a quarter. Like it's you could probably run further than that. <laughs> I don't know unless I was running from but something. But if, if your batteries were being charged while you were running, <laughs> well, who knows then how I long could you keep could go. going back and forth. Yeah. I could keep going all day long, and that's it though. That's why the, this it's while like they they figured out all these safety things about how you know like it wouldn't get in the way of of. It would be perfectly safe. Nobody's going to get electrocuted. This seemed to be a fear thing. And and also, um, you know, like it wouldn't be like winter and storms and all kinds of things could happen over this infrastructure and it wouldn't make a difference. But in the end, it's only 1.25 of miles of space. So we're talking about, you know, we're talking about a, a sort of a rich environmentalist country doing this pilot project that sort of, you know, proof of concept that proof of concept we can build a smart road that will charge a car <laughs> here's a funny part about it as the next step the swedish government is looking to lay a longer stretch to around 15 to 20 miles in a couple of years that's pretty cool <laughs> i just is like you know what's cool about this is what you just said proof of concept yeah that the very fact that there may be ways to like charge your EVs as you go, like that. Th- there's game changer yeah, there oh, for sure. You know, but Definitely. yeah. But I would I wonder guess, about you know like how how much of a charge you pick up from going over this road. Like, are you simply extending your range, or does your battery never deplete? You say it 100. percent Yeah, know, I kind yeah, of wonder I'll, about those. There's those there, sorts I had of a things. lot of questions about, but that. um, it's really interesting, and you know, it, I mean it. It's the, they're they're pointing to the future of electric vehicles. I mean, I, I think like the multi-hour recharge sort of proposition is is viewed skeptically by a lot of people. Well, and so if they can figure yeah. out a way to build smart infrastructure, especially where it's it's needed. it's 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 a, it's a potential approach to a solution, especially when it, they parallel rail lines, which mm. is apparently where they're getting oh. a lot of the power as well. Uh, so long stretches of lonely highway between El Paso and Houston. Sorry, you're you're gonna be on your own battery. You're, you're out. Um, so anyway, kind of interesting though. And along those lines, yeah, it leads us into our um, our interview with uh, Geo um, Sedoni of uh, Thor Trucks. They're building 
had yeah. a fantastic interview with him at Transparency 18. Yeah, and they're building um, electric trucks. And they actually have a really cool sort of a collaborative um, kind of industry incumbent, in, in a way, approach to it. So unlike Tesla, for example, they're not trying to reinvent the wheel. Yeah, and uh, one thing I really like about this 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 group uh, of, of Thor is they're they're very you know their their mo is they're very modest. You know they're 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 not they're not bragging. They're, they're like not, if someone can build the drivetrain better than we can, we want to partner with them. <laughs> yeah, there is that. Yeah, yeah, and they've consistently said, look, we're not trying to compare ourselves to you know to Tesla. We we are our own people, just doing our things. So and and you, the founder and CEO of the company came from a trucking family that owned a fleet of about two hundred and fifty trucks. They get the economics of the industry, which I think is like so important. Right, Dakota. Because similar. it's like what kind of vehicles will be attractive to what kind of customers? I mean, I think they that's their strength, really. Yeah, and it's fantastic. And uh, and here is our interview with Geo. For our five good minutes segment today, we're joined by COO of Thor Trucks, Geo. Giordano Sordoni. Did I get that right? Growing up, Gio suffered from terrible asthma due to a pollution-riddled Los Angeles. That's at least part of how he and partner CEO Dakota Simler were motivated to start a project that would have a social impact, an environmental impact, and could be a sustainable business. An electric truck startup seemed like a perfect fit. Gio, welcome to the show. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a, I'm a big fan, so this is a it's a big moment for me. Oh, we are big fans of Thor, Thank and you. we're excited. Are you ready to play Five Good Minutes? I was born ready. <laughs> All right. Well, ready or not, here we come. And if you can, if you if you can manage to do this this very difficult gauntlet of questions in five minutes, you get the free T-shirt, man. All right. So um, in December of 2017, Thor announced plans to bring a heavy-duty electric vehicle to market before the Tesla Semi hits in 2019. And of course, that may never happen. But how much closer are you to a target date here at the end of May 2018? We are much closer and still targeting uh, full production in 2019. To clean up the record a little bit, I will say that we never—it was never our position that we were like out to beat Tesla to market. Oh, I remember that. It was a, yeah, more were. of a, a journalist. Journalist construed idea, which is fine. <laughs> cool. And it got you some attention. All right. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about the battery? Um, what have you learned about batteries in building the ET1? Um, what kind of technology are you using? And are you partnering with anyone in particular? Yeah. So uh, a big lesson in batteries is that you need a an application-specific solution for different applications. So one of the big lessons learned early on was don't try to use a battery that was designed for a passenger car and adapt it to a commercial vehicle. The application is, is just different. Passenger cars focus on um, having limited space rather than things like cost and weight and range and safety. And so being that in a passenger vehicle, or sorry, in a commercial vehicle, we have more space. Um, that gives us the opportunity to start with a focus on safety, on cost, and on performance, meaning range and weight, rather than being kind of uh, limited by, by space and going from, from that direction. Um, so yeah, another lesson battery, we are 
very cost uh, cost competitive and, and know that in order to put vehicles on the road with hundreds of kilowatt hours, we need to be somewhere around $200 a kilowatt hour for our costs. Um, mm -hmm. So that's that's the, the goal for us. Okay, so in-house is what I'm hearing on that. In-house, uh, so we have a, a humble portfolio of patents around our battery module design and the cooling mechanism and the software around that. Um, the cells do come from suppliers. We're not, uh, uh, you know, chemists and building our own cells, but we are also supplier agnostic when it comes to that vein. Um, there are a few people that you can buy really good cells from. We're using a very high energy density um, format cylindrical cell that is seeing improvements in the in the kind of range of five to ten percent a year for the next you know eight or so years. It's a, a new product, so they'll continue iterating on it. Terrific. Are you? Uh, do you have any customers yet? Are you taking reservations? And what kind of customers are you trying to sell these trucks to? Yeah, so uh, the answer is yes, and the kinds of customers that have applications that are around 300 miles or under and return home at night, those are going to be the lowest hanging fruit for us. So kind of short to medium range okay. vehicles that can install or fleets that can install charging at their facilities rather than uh, relying on a public charging infrastructure. That's going to be the bread and butter for commercial electric vehicles in the next few years. Um, so folks that do that are really excited and, and that's applications like local delivery, uh, grocery, drayage, um, intermodal, there's, there's plenty of folks, even more than half of the class eight market is doing uh, regional type or local type hauls. Geo, um, right now Thor Trucks is about 30 people, uh, over 90% of them are engineers. And I'm just wondering, um, as you guys are starting to scale up production, what's the biggest like challenge or hurdle or barrier that you guys are facing right now? Yeah, um, it's, uh, well, one is focus. There's a, a lot of di different di directions that we could be pulled in. So it, it's um, trying to keep focus on getting vehicles on the road and doing one thing at a time. Another challenge for any company in the space right now, just because it's so hot, is uh, recruiting and hiring the amount of people that we need to hire um, to continue to scale and, and, and grow. Um, even in Los Angeles, where there's plenty of very talented engineers on the software side and the system side and the battery side, it's still a very competitive marketplace when you have, you know, every day it seems like there's a new uh, Chinese supercar OEM that are <laughs> hire eighteen hundred people in, in a year and, and um, so we're there's a lot of competition for the types of jobs that we are hiring for. Yes, and it's a tight space there in, in, in California, right? Right. When are you guys looking to close Series A funding? Sometime this summer. So okay. we, we haven't soon. formally opened it yet. Um, but it's going to be a quick one just because there's been a lot of uh, customers as well as um, kind of strategic investors that have expressed interest in getting in. Excellent job. Awesome. We peppered you with five questions and you still managed to do it in 449. That may be a record, Geo, so far. So nice job. Barry, let's, let's give the man a t-shirt or two or three. Um, all right, Geo, so glad you could make it. Thanks for, uh, thanks for being on. Thank you guys. Next time I want I want in on the beer exchange. Right. Oh, right, I know. Right. Yeah, you got to come in house, and we'll pop the top on uh, a fresh beer of your choice. I'll be back. <laughs> All right, thanks, dude. <laughs> awesome, man. And now it's time to play big deal or little deal. Are you ready, deal pickle? Are we with the um, eight uh, topics like the last time? 
Well, the yeah, pre- we're the, raising the ante. The pressure is still on. Yeah, and this time we're going to do better than two minutes and two seconds. We're going to do this in 159. Are you ready? I think so. Ford VW to explore joint development of commercial vehicles. Big deal or little deal? Big deal. Ford is already in the last mile business with the transit vans, and Volkswagen is owning a larger and larger share of Navistar. I think the possibilities here are limitless. Penske Logistics to acquire EPS Transport Systems. Big deal or little deal? It's a little deal. It's important that Penske is getting into the truckload market, but Epps has, has lost a bunch of executives recently. Small deal. The Chainalinux Cohen indices tell us about freight markets, and a lot has changed for carriers. Big deal or little deal? Little deal. Their data is like two months old. Hotlanta is popping off. Big deal or little deal? I would say a little deal. It's temporary. It's a surge. It's a surge that we predicted tracking um, the flow of freight from L.A. to Dallas to Atlanta. Port volumes keep humming along. Tariff impact minimal for now. Big deal or little deal? Big deal. The 2018 Capacity Crunch song (laughs) remains the same. Tariffs or no tariffs? A sweet deal. Nestle and XPO set to open a massive distribution center in the UK. Big deal or little deal? Big deal. It's going to be one of the most advanced distribution management centers in the world, granting consumers quicker access to some of Nestle's over 2,000 brands. Way to go, XBO. Google puts over $500 million into Chinese e-commerce giant JD.com. Big deal or little deal? Big deal. $550 million making Google a key stakeholder in their fortunes. This will help both companies expand even in China where e-commerce has grown surprisingly since 2015, roughly 500 million strong. E-Harvest Hub developing farm-to-table solutions by cutting out the middlemen. Big deal or little deal? It's a big deal. You cut out the middlemen, that's a big deal. They don't even have to have a blockchain solution so far. I love their solutions. Go E-Harvest Hub. Oh, we we got it. We did, we did it. it. It just goes Yay. to show you something. And that'll do it for the big stories this week. As always, we go into more detail about each of the topics we've talked about today on our website, FreightWaves.com. We will continue to publish this podcast weekly, so be sure to subscribe to What the Truck on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Also, make sure to leave us a review to let us know what you think of our new podcast. And if you're interested in freight economics and finance, come to our Market Waves Conference at the Gaylord Texan Resort and Convention Center in Grapevine, Texas, this November. Visit marketwaves18.com to learn more about this event. That'll do it for today. Thanks for tuning in, and we will see you next week on What What the the truck. Truck.